You want to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to begin reading in verse 31 in a moment. Luke, chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. Our outline for this message is quite simple. Three points. Sifted, saved, and sent. And we get those three things from the text. Chapter 22 of Luke, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold... Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat sifted. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Saved. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Sent. Sifted, saved, and sent. That's what we're going to talk about today. And I just want to cover, if you weren't here last week, just what we mean when we talk about sifting. One of the basic operating procedures for the devil is that when he speaks to man about God, he slanders God. And when he speaks to God about man, he slanders man. The devil's demand in this text to sift Peter is simply this, a basic proposition. If you let me shake this guy, he will separate from you. And I'll prove it if you let me shake him up a little bit. Last week, we applied this text in an individual way. This week, we're going to apply this text in a corporate way. I've been here, Victor's been here for preaching off and on for about a year. Uh, and, and I'll just let you know point blank, it's, it's not a stretch at all to, to modify that passage a little bit and simply say, providence, providence. Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But Christ has interceded for you that your faith may not fail. So when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The Lord has been at work on your behalf over the last year. You were sifted dramatically. And I want to create a category for that because we see it here happening to an individual. But I want to create a category, help you to understand that biblically speaking, churches get sifted in the same way that individuals do all the time. It's the same basic idea. Satan attempts to shake a church to the point where they separate both from each other, but most importantly from the Lord. In fact, Peter, later on in his ministry, with this idea firmly in mind, writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is common. This happens. Satan attempts to sift whole churches. This sort of thing, as Peter was writing in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, is common. People all over the world are experiencing this very thing. Well, why would God allow a church to be sifted? Why would God allow a church to be shaken? Well, if you continue reading in that passage in 1 Peter 5, we see the answer. Peter says immediately following that, And after you've suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory, the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Why would God allow circumstances to come into our life that shake us to the core? Why would God allow circumstances to come into our church that shake our church to the core? Because it is God's will to restore, confirm, strengthen and establish us. You see, we're talking about sifting, but we're talking also about God's saving. 
The truth is, is that God allows churches to be shaken for the same reason he allows people to be shaken and for the same reason he does anything. God, whatever he's doing, is always doing it so that he receives glory. And what he's doing in this particular instance in my life as as he allows me to be shaken or in this church as he allows the church to be shaken is always the same thing. The devil says, let me get at this guy. Let me get at this church and shake it to the point where it will separate from you. And God says, yes, but not so that he wins a bet with the devil. But because in that shaking, we're not separated from God. Because our relationship with God isn't dependent on how tightly we hold his hand. My relationship with God, thank God, is not dependent on how tightly I hold his hand. If you've been a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you're walking across the street with your little one and they're holding your hand, if that's their security, they're going to die. Young parents, pro tip, that's not supposed to be the security. No, no, no. They can hold your hand, but you're holding their hand. And it's your grip on them that keeps them safe not their grip on you. And so, so when we are sifted as true followers of Jesus Christ, we know for certain that we won't be separated from God. Romans 8 says, who can separate us? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because Jesus himself is interceding for us. What God says is, is that, no, they're not going to be separated from me. I've already taken care of that. What they're going to be separated from, what they're going to be shaken from is their sin. God has a sanctifying purpose in our shaking. That's what he's up to. And that's what he's been up to in this church. His goal for this church, his goal for you as an individual, is not that you'd be separated from him, but that you'd be separated from all the false hymns that you trust in, all the idols, all the things you hope in, all the things you want to bring you satisfaction that never can, all the things you're counting on for true happiness that, honestly, at some point, if you haven't figured it out already, won't make you happy. God's intending that all of those things be shaken from you so that all you have left is the the one thing that can't be lost, the the one thing that can't be shaken. You know, individuals can be hot or cold or lukewarm in their affections, but as we read the Bible, we see that churches can be hot or lukewarm or hot or cold or lukewarm in their affections. Individuals can be zealous for good works or they can be kind of lazy, and so can churches. Individuals can have a high or low view of practical holiness, and so can churches. And the goal in any kind of sifting that happens, whether it be at the individual level or at the church level, is always that all of those false things, all of those sins which so easily entangle would be shaken from us. And what would remain would be the thing that cannot be shaken. And what I want to do with this message today is be a little more specific about I, as the newcomer, what I've observed, I think what I've observed the Lord doing in our midst, as it relates to this question of, specifically, what has the Lord been up to in this sifting? What is the Lord doing in this sifting? Well, at the very big categories, we understand his attempt is to separate us, both from one another and from him. You know, one of the interesting things, I I had to watch a ton of YouTube videos on wheat harvesting in order to preach the sermon. I hope you appreciate the, the, you know, and I I really, I really, like, I I need to understand this. So, uh, so I started watching all of these videos of guys as they're sifting wheat. And 
I watched carefully as they th- filled up the, the basket or whatever the sifter is with heads of grain, and then they're shaking it, right, so that, the, so that all the husk and stuff separates from the wheat berries that they'll eventually take after they winnow them. That's, that's what us professional sifters talk about when we talk about the next step. Uh, after they winnow those berries, they'll turn that into flour. What I noticed as I watched these videos is you've got this, this basket and they're shaking it, right? And, and yeah, sure, a little bit. The wheat is banging up against that screen and that's how it's loosening a little bit. You know when I, when I watch those videos how most of the action actually takes place? It's not from the wheat heads smashing up against the screen. It's from the wheat heads smashing up against each other. So what does a corporate sifting look like? What does it look like to be in a church? Does it look like 100% harmony on all things? Does it look like smooth sailing? Does it look like zero relational friction? Absolutely not. It looks like a bunch of people banging into each other, banging their heads up against one another, but it looks like progress. It looks like sanctification. It looks like growth. Friends, if you've ever find yourself in a frictionless group of people, You've narrow-casted too far. You've sought out people too much like yourself. Don't do that to yourself. You're not going to grow that way. We want to be surrounded by people that are different than us. We are surrounded by people that are different than us. And we want to see God work in that community. So specifically, we know the Lord's effort, or the devil's effort is to separate us. We know that God won't let that happen. He'll keep us faithful to him and to each other. But let's talk even more specifically. What has the Lord done through this particular sifting? Well, I think one thing he's done is to help us to see the evil of sin in a new way. So that within the last year, perhaps we see the seriousness of sin in a new way. Specifically, let me talk about three sins. There are many. There are probably three that have come up more this year than in previous years. Do we now have a more serious view of sexual sin? Do we have now a more serious view of sexual sin? All sins are serious. All sins will separate us from God. Do we understand now some of the unique difficulties associated with sexual sin? Do we now have a more serious view of sinful secret keeping? Has that hit us at a new level as a church in the last year of sinful secret keeping? Do we now have a more serious view of not trusting God with our financial provision? You see, because I think that the mechanism of sifting was this. A man was caught in sexual sin. He feared the rejection of others. He he loved his reputation and feared where his paycheck would come from if he obeyed God. Sensual sin, fear of man, love of money. All working together, as honestly they often do, to create a sifting event. Do we now see, as a result of this, those particular sins shaken off a little bit more than they would have been had we not been shaken You see, if sexual sin isn't seen as unusually ensnaring, if secret keeping and the fear of man is not seen as especially hypocritical, 
and disobeying God because you're afraid of your financial li- livelihood, if, if that doesn't seem just hypocritical, if those truths haven't worked on your soul in a new way over the last 12 months, then you're missing it because that's what God has been doing. He's been making us see those things more clearly. And honestly, five years from now, he'll have a new set for us to see. This is what he's doing right now. We ought to walk in a way as a result of this sifting with a renewed commitment to integrity, a renewed commitment to sexual integrity, a renewed commitment to community integrity. What do I mean by community integrity? I mean being honest with each other, being real with each other, being authentic, being truthful. And we ought to walk away also, and this is a big deal, with a renewed commitment to financial integrity. Because a big part of this, let's be honest, let's be clear, a big part of this sifting involved a sinful attachment to a paycheck at the cost of pursuing Jesus. Let me be very clear with you. Leadership is more caught than taught. And there's an inordinate amount of leadership that happens just by someone being in the position of leader. And you may have been led poorly in all three ways for quite some time. And don't look to me to be righteous. You need Jesus, right? This is not about pointing, pointing to me, but I would say this. Has the Lord begun to strip away, like refinishing a piece of furniture, layers of sexual sin, of the fear of man, and the love of money. I think that's the sifting. That's the sanctifying purpose of God's sifting in the life of this church over the last year. So that's one of the reasons why God will allow us to be sifted, to help us to see with new eyes the evil of sin. But he'll also help us to be, allow us to be sifted so that we can see the intention of Satan. You can never forget that you have an enemy. You can never forget that you're at war. Someone asked me last week if this discussion of the devil isn't leading, couldn't possibly lead, perhaps, to someone abandoning their human responsibility. In other words, the devil made me do it. You know, that's the rejoinder. The devil made me do it. Not at all. Not at all. He doesn't have the power to make you not trust Jesus. That's all in you. That sin is on you. But I want you to consider, I've established these three categories, sexual sin, fear of man, love of money. I want you to consider two verses in Scripture that show the devil's unique role in those categories. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's talking to a group of married people about their sexual connection, their sex life, and he's saying, don't deprive each other, don't let it go too long, unless you've agreed to do that because of some, some, some spiritual goal that you're seeking. Otherwise, Satan could tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So as I'm bringing Satan's intention more clearly to your eyes in this moment, I want you to see that his, he has a role to play in these sins. 
but it's to exploit your propensity to sin. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they sold a piece of property and made a decent amount of money on it. And when they sold the property, they communicated that, uh, to the church that they were giving all of it away to the church. And instead what they were doing was they were giving a portion of it to the church. They were holding some of it back, which was not a problem. They could have done that. It wouldn't have been an issue at all. But they desired to get the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the kudos, right, the approval for giving it all away. And so they lied. They told the church they were giving it all away when they weren't. They communicated that they were more generous than they were. And Peter says, Ananias, talking to the husband, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of this land? So if the Lord's intention in our sifting is to help us to see these three things, take them more seriously, while also seeing the intention of Satan more seriously, we can see how those two things actually connect together. And that Satan actually has a role to play in those particular sins, not just those, by the way. Just talking about those because it seems like that's what the Lord is talking about right now. Now, this, this, is, this is the second thing that God does through our sifting, through our shaking. He helps us to see how evil sin is. He helps us to see how intentional the devil is. And suddenly our alerts are raised to a more biblical level, which is a good thing. Another form of his sanctification, another manifestation of his sanctification. But let me tell you a third way that God has helped us, has sanctified us through the sifting. He's shown you your limitations. He's shown me my limitations. Just, just one example of that. When you realize that you can be lied to and not know it, that you can't see another person's heart that you trust, and if they want to lie to you, they will probably get away with it. Many of your God delusions get crushed. And you realize, man, I'm just a dumb human being. And I need a God bigger than me who sees the heart and who vindicates righteousness because I can be exploited. I can be used. I can be deceived. And I need someone who can't be. And I could keep talking about this, but in another way, God has shown us our weakness in a way that's pressed us into relying more fully on him. In short, I think we love the facade less. We're dipping our toes into the waters of transparency and confession. You know, we have people in this church who were in their who are now in their 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s who were pushed into a pit called pornography when they were 10 years old or 12 years old. I want you to just sit on that for a moment. I want you to picture a 10-year-old boy. 10-year-old boy. About as dumb as they come, right? About as naive as they come. About as vulnerable as they come. A 10-year-old girl was way smarter than a 10-year-old boy all day long. I want you to picture a 10-year-old boy. 10-year-old boy being attacked and pushed into a pit. So deep that many of those 10-year-old boys and those 12-year-old boys never get out. And now I want you to imagine 
And over the last year, a number of those 10-year-old boys, 12-year-old boys, who have lived in that pit for a very long time, have been brought out and experienced freedom and redemption in a way, honestly, they had long given up hoping to experience. This church is being sanctified. People are being freed from all kinds of pits because those little boys were like all of us. They had another pit within the pit and that was they were desperately afraid of people judging them. They were desperately afraid of being rejected. They craved approval and acceptance and belonging. And Jesus gave them the faith to hold up what was probably the bigger idol in all respects. The fear of being thought lowly of. The fear of being thought poorly of. And they put that in front of Jesus and trusted him with that. And told the truth. And confessed and put light in on darkness. So that sexual sin was sanctified in this church. But also the fear of man has begun to be sanctified in this church. And as for the love of money, stay for the family meeting. I have some things to share. (laughs) Hopefully we're beginning to see that God can be trusted with our finances. And that whatever hole is caused by the withdrawal of funds is only there so that God can fill it up with better stuff. Hopefully we begin to believe that at a new level. I want to tell you the most important thing that's happening as a result of this shaking, as a result of this sifting. We are seeing the saving power of Jesus more clearly. We are seeing him keep his promises. We are seeing his cause bloom into bigger things in our lives. And we are seeing that the devil can sift all day long, but Jesus' salvation endures above all. He is able to save to the uttermost. And some of us feel that more this year than we did last year. We've got to stop and thank the Lord. And we've got to stop and see what a difference the cross makes. I read you that verse in 1 Peter 5 where Peter says, Hey, listen, you're being shaken right now. The devil's trying to eat you. He's like a lion. And, and all the churches around the world are experiencing this. And this is during the 1st and 2nd century of Rome. Uh, you know all that's happening at that time. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But he's saying, you know, this is just getting really crazy. But trust me, after you've suffered for a little while, the Lord himself will restore and strengthen and confirm and establish you. You know, I want you to compare that to a group of people at the beginning of the Bible who were released from Egypt under brick-making slavery, by the way, released from Egypt into the wilderness and couldn't follow God because they loved the food that they had back in their slavery. I want you to see how when God brought that people out of, the wilderness, out of slavery into the wilderness, most of them fell away. I want you to see that the separation was almost entirely successful. The sifting was almost entirely successful. Why? Because they were thirsty, because they were hungry, because they were bored. I don't know. For really fickle, terribly fickle reasons. 
And now I want you to hit fast forward through the Scriptures, past the cross, and see a group of people that Peter's addressing in chapter 5 who are losing their lives, who are being beaten for the sake of the Gospel, who are being cast into prison naked, who are losing all of their possessions, who are experiencing rejection from their kinfolk in, in, in the Jewish culture and experiencing oppression from, from the Roman culture. And they're hanging tough. And what's the difference? What's the difference between these people in the desert in Exodus and these people in the diaspora in Rome in First Peter? The difference is the cross. The difference is Jesus. Jesus Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. So in this sifting, we would never want to walk away from this sifting. This is huge. This is crucial. This is probably one of my most important jobs as your new pastor. We would never want to walk away from this sifting and place our hope in another man. We would never want to say this is better because of this guy or this is better because of that guy. We would want to say Jesus restored us. Jesus established us. Jesus confirmed us. It's Jesus himself who will keep us from being sifted. And all of this leads to worship. When you have a clear view of your weakness, a more serious view of your sin, and the battle of Satan... When all of those things are at their peak and they come into contact with faith, then you start worshiping. You start worshiping when you see how deep Jesus' provision for our situation is. When you see the seriousness of Satan through the eyes of faith, you worship a God who is infinitely stronger. When you see the seriousness of sin through the eyes of of faith, you worship a Jesus whose grace is infinitely superior. So the sifting of the devil and the saving of Jesus lead to worship. And we're through the first two points of the outline, sifted and saved. Now hopefully, as I kind of jog your memory, you're going to remember this, this kind of language we're going to talk about here in a moment from other messages I've preached that have the same idea. If I were to say that if something goes upward in praise, if I start talking about worship, and I say that worship is this result of being sifted and saved, upward in praise, then where do we go from upward? We go outward. We're sifted, we're saved, and we're sent. I was thinking about Isaiah 6 the other day. Isaiah is in this moment where he sees God on full display in the glory of the temple. Uh, uh, he's completely in this in this this apocalyptic, enormous God moment, and he says, "Woe is to me, for I've come undone." There's judgment. There's sifting. He sees how small he is in the eyes of this big God. He sees how he cannot stand in the presence of God's holiness. Woe to me, for I've come undone. For I, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That's the sifting. And God causes that sin to be uh, cured. That's the saving. And then what happens after the sifting and the saving? The Lord says, Who will go for us? And whom shall I send? That's the sending. 
every moment, every instance in which you are sifted and saved should result in you going out and loving other people with the same good news that has just healed and and restored you. Worship always winds up leading to work. Praise always leads to proclamation. And that which is truly upward will always go outward. That's just the way that God's built this thing. And it shows up all over Scripture. So when Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 31, 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for your faith that, or prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And after you've turned, go strengthen your brothers. He's taking him through the basic math of the gospel. Judgment, sifting. Redemption, saving. Go out and make disciples. Sending. If we don't respond with an eagerness to go, we have not experienced the reality of sifting and the reality of salvation. If we don't respond going out into the world as satisfied customers, not as eager salesmen, but just as satisfied customers saying we have been uniquely sifted and uniquely saved. If we don't see those things as a commissioning outward, we haven't actually experienced the gospel. And we're not following a man named Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. The scent looks different each time. But it isn't really different. It's just about sharing. It's just about loving other people. It's just about suddenly this thing inside of you coming alive. And it's so alive, you've got to give it to others. This love in you that's so impactful that you just start loving other people differently. This profound grace that has just rocked you that makes you incapable of judging other people. There's always ascending. We can talk about sending money to Pakistan or in March. Pray for me. I have the unbelievable... I don't think it's a privilege at all. I think it's a burden. I'm going to preach. I'm going to teach these pastors in Pakistan about hermeneutics. These godly men who face death every day. I'm going to go teach them about how to study the Bible. (laughs) I'm going to need a lot of boldness to do that. I'm going to need a lot of boldness to do that. that. To me, that feels like going up to a World War II veteran and saying, let me give you a lecture on toughness. Right? Right. I know this whole Normandy thing was impressive in your day, but let me tell you, I stubbed my toe last night, didn't cuss. <laughs> God has put an incredible opportunity in front of us to reply, to respond to this sifting and saving with all sorts of amazing sendings, right? All sorts of amazing commissions, all sorts of amazing opportunities to go out. And that is consistently what we see. During our family meeting, I'm going to announce a significant increase in our giving out the door, in outreach, church planning, and missions. And that giving is based solely on one idea and one idea alone. How can we look at a God who has been so faithful to us and not respond with increased faith? How can we call ourselves Providence Church? Have the year we've had 
and not say as a result of those things, we're going to do more. We're going to, we're going to do more. We're going to believe more of God. We're going, to, we're going to step into more faith. We're going to step into more risk. Now, there are two obstacles that will keep us from going in this direction. If you'll look at the rest of the text, verse 33 and verse 34, let me just say, uh, first of all, I won't talk a lot about this, but there are two obstacles that can keep us from going. Number one is shame, and number two is entitlement. So let me just cover shame quickly. I want you to notice in the text how Jesus pivots in verse 35 to a discussion of the practicality of going. We're going to land on that, stay on that as we conclude. Verse 35, he pivots to talk about the practicality of going. And I want you to see that verses 33 and 34 detail Peter's actual fall. Okay, so Peter responds to Jesus, Jesus, I would never deny you. Are you kidding me? Not me. I would never deny you. And Jesus says, Peter, it's going to happen. It's going to happen tonight. And uh, I just want you to see this. That is a speed bump, not an obstacle in Peter's destiny to serve Jesus. One thing that could keep us from going as individuals, as a church, are all the various brands of shame that we experience after being shaken. Let me give you an example. If you haven't told your neighbors, if, you haven't, if, you have, if your neighbors don't know the gospel and haven't heard it from you, you need to change that. But the shame peddler will come in and say, oh, that's going to be interesting. You've lived next to them for 10 years. They're just going to walk up and say, surprise, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, because shame shouldn't be the thing that keeps you from doing the right thing. You don't look back in the rearview mirror and say, but man, I've just, I've just stepped in it so many times. Man, I've just failed so often. Men, some of you, we had this discussion with a group of men the other night. God's calling you to pray, for your, pray with your wives and, and, and lead them in God's word. And for some of you, you've been married for 10 years, five years, whatever, maybe longer, and maybe you haven't done that. Let me tell you something. Shame will tell you, oh, well, that's just going to seem so artificial and weird, and suddenly you're just turning over a new leaf, so on and so forth. Yeah, that's right. Just own it. It's okay. Let's move away from the fear of man. Let's, let's work. Let, me, let me give you guys, a, man, a pro tip here. Okay, done a lot of marriage counseling. Our wives don't need us to win. That's not what, that's not what their respect for us depends on. They're not, they don't respect us because we're winners. They respect us because we're fighters. So start fighting again, men. If you've gone too long in one thing or another, start fighting again. You will not find on the other end of that experience someone saying, well, gosh, that took you long enough. Or, oh, all of a sudden now we're the Jesus family. No, you'll, 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 you'll find someone on the other end who says, I love it when my husband fights against his own sin, against his own apathy, against the recliner, against the remote, against his own shame. I love it when he fights. So shame can keep us from doing this. In fact, Jesus has to go to Peter one more time and say this stuff again. Peter's brokenhearted. 
he really has denied Jesus. He, he's, he is shocked, I think, that he denied Jesus. He's denied Jesus. And Jesus comes to him again toward the end of the book of John, like the last chapter of the book of John. And he does the exact same rhythm again, the upward and outward rhythm again. He asks Peter two questions. One's an upward question, and then he, he gives him an outward command, I guess. better. The upward question, do you love me? Yeah, I do. Then feed my sheep. Upward, outward, upward, outward. Friends, we don't need to spend a ton of time looking in the rearview mirror. God's changing you, and he will continue to change you. God can use anybody, anything. You just need to answer one question. Do you love him? Yeah, I do. He's really helped me even this year to love him more. I think I, I don't know that if I would have answered that question differently a year ago. I might have lied just to make it sound good. But I can tell you right now, after the year I've had, I do love him. Then go. Because you're equipped. With a broken and contrite spirit, the Lord will use you. So shame could keep us from that, but, but also a sense of entitlement. Look at verse 35. He said to them, this is part of Jesus' sending commission. He said to them, what I sent you out with no money bag, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. This text has a ton of complexities. I'm not going to talk about how many swords you should take to church. Some of you are packing right now. Dave Kula told me that uh, if, if anybody ever comes in the church to, to shoot me, to duck, because there will be seven people in the church cross-firing. You know. uh, I, I just want to lock in. Hey, thank you. No. <laughs> I just want to lock in on, on, on one thing that's important as we talk about this sending. Jesus is letting us know that at the beginning of their experience following him, they experienced sort of witness bearing one-on-one. They'd experienced the very easy version of what it means to be a witness of Jesus. And he's saying now things are going to be tough. He's saying that now things can be difficult. Going out is going to cost you. It's going to be something we must strategically think through. Jesus is saying when he says, uh, the scripture must be fulfilled to me that I was numbered among the transgressors. I think Jesus is talking about the cross as a part of this larger thing that now Jesus and all of his followers are going to experience where the name of Jesus is anathema. It's a curse where Jesus himself is reproached in the culture. Uh, for, for centuries after Jesus, the, uh, the, 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 the worship, the prayers in the synagogue every day included the, the birkat ha-minam, uh, which just meant this, let the Nazarenes be destroyed in a moment. So for years, centuries after Jesus, Jewish synagogues contain the prayer, let the Nazarenes be destroyed in a moment. You know, some archaeologists about 100 years ago uncovered some of the first uh, graffiti that they'd experienced relating to Christianity. And it's called the Aleximinos Graffitas. And it's this picture in an old school uh, during the time of Caligula, 
right? Very early Rome. This picture scribbled on a wall of a donkey head, man body on a cross, and a boy standing next to the cross. And the word says, Aleximinos worships his God. And it's a taunt. It's saying your God is a donkey. Your God's an ass. And Christians were experiencing this really from the beginning. And Jesus is saying in this words, sending is going to hurt. Going is going to hurt. Going is going to sift. There's trouble to come and going. And I call you to do it because I'm faithful. Listen, I'll just tell you point blank. You don't get the gospel if you don't think that God can't handle treachery out there. You know why you don't get it? Because he's handled treachery in here. And if he's handled it in here, he'll handle it out there. So what is Jesus saying in this section of the text? Well, let me just give you four ideas. Number one, we've got to be realistic. Trouble will come. Number two, we've got to bear risk. Number three, we've got to be resourceful. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is not going to advance apart from money bags. Money bags. Jesus is saying that we will have to contribute to the kingdom of God's advance. He's saying that's a necessary piece of the advancement. And the fourth thing is to be reliable to one another. So be realistic. It's going to hurt. Bear risk. It's part of the cost of discipleship. Be resourceful. And be reliable. There's this quote I read this week that I just felt summed this up so well. Let me read this to you. Their mission hereafter would call for all the provision they could make, all of the equipment they could get together, all the skill they could summon. Precautions had to be taken. Strategies worked out. The less important must yield to the more. Christ's mission was moving on toward its fulfillment even as God had ordained the gospel was coming to grips with the world. And the world has been coming to grips with the gospel ever since. You know, I told you about that graffiti with the, with the donkey Jesus on the cross and that mocking of this probably little boy who was following Jesus, probably a teenager who was in some school in Rome. You know, as archaeologists dug through, this is going to sound made up, it's not. As they dug through the chambers, they found another room kind of further back from that larger room. And they found an inscription on the wall. No picture. Very small. It just said, Aleximinos is faithful. By the grace of God, we will be faithful. We've been sifted and saved to be sent. And when we go, we will be sifted again. And we will be saved again. And we will be sent again. Upward and outward. On and on. Until the kingdom comes in its fullness. And the glory of the Lord fills this earth. Like the oceans. Cover, like the water covers the sea. Each time God is faithful to us, we respond with greater faith. The appropriate response to God's faithfulness 
in this last year is greater faith. Let me pray for us. Lord, everybody is operating in this room on a timeline up for happiness. Some are operating on a, on a five-minute timeline. They're mostly concerned about their happiness in the next five minutes. Some are operating on a, a, a lunch timeline. They're concerned about their happiness at lunch. I'm concerned about both those things too, Lord. Some of them are operating on a five-year timeline. They're concerned about what their life is going to look like in five years or in 20 years. Uh, but, Lord, it takes a lot of faith takes your, your help in big ways to operate on an eternal timeline and ask the question, what leads me in this church to eternal joy in you, not just temporal joy? I want to be happy forever, not just, uh, not just in the next five years. And Lord, if, if you would call me to lay down my happiness in the next five years for eternal happiness, God, all that's keeping me from seeing that as an awesome investment is my lack of faith. So I pray that you would give me faith. I pray that you give us faith. Help us to believe that that's true. Lord, thank you that you have overcome all the treachery, all the bitterness, all the venom in us. We are, I am, the worst of sinners. If you can save me, you can save anybody. If you can overcome my noxious rebellion, you can overcome it anywhere. You've allowed us to be sifted. You've saved us, and now you're sending us, Lord. God, be blessed in our going. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to introduce the Lord's table by reading a little bit of a passage from Zechariah 3. There's a man named Joshua. He's the high priest. He represents the people of God. And he's standing before God in this kind of surrealistic vision. He's standing before God. The prophet sees it. And he sees also that Satan is standing before God. Satan's standing before God to accuse Joshua, the high priest. The, the text says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. Thus says the Lord, of the of hosts if you walk in my ways and keep my charge then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and i will give you the right of access among those who are standing here hear now o joshua the high priest you and your friends who sit before you for they are men who are a sign behold i will bring my servant the branch for behold on the stone that i have set before joshua on a single stone with seven eyes i will engrave its inscription declares the lord of hosts and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine. 
and under his fig tree. Did you hear the sifting and the saving and the sending? That's empowered by Jesus giving us his righteousness through his sacrifice, his pouring out of his blood, the breaking of his body for our sake. Today, as we approach this table, let's focus on the sending piece. Asking the Lord to give us faith to go as people who have been sifted and saved. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to come partake of this table and understand that sending piece perhaps more clearly. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, welcome. And we just encourage you to think about what God said to you today. Hopefully he's spoken to you today. Just take a moment to reflect.